The coronavirus has an average size of 125 nanometers. Now, uh, you may not know exactly what that means. I didn't either. I had to look it up, but here's what it means. The head of a pin is roughly 1 million nanometers across. That means 8,000 coronaviruses can fit on the head of a pin. You know, if you were to hit pause on this video, don't, but if you were to hit pause on this video and for the next two minutes, watch your fingernails grow, they would grow roughly uh, the length and size of a coronavirus, 125 nanometers. It's small. It's so small that we can't see it with the naked eye, obviously. And for the last three months, our world has been completely turned upside down by this virus that we can't see. I mean, we're washing our hands more than we ever have before. We're uh, wearing masks when we go outside. Our lives have completely changed. The economy has crashed. Air travel has halted. We don't see people outside of our houses for the most part. And it's all because of this thing that inhabits the air that we can't see. So pause and take that in for a moment. Because as we start to wrap up the Paul's letter to the Ephesians today, Paul's going to start talking about a world that's present that we can't see. See, just like the coronavirus, we can see the effects of it everywhere, but we can't detect it with the naked eye. And I love that this is where we find ourselves as we end this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, a study that we've been in and out of over the last few months together. Because I think right now, in this moment, we are more aware of the unseen world that's present in our midst than maybe we ever have been before. What if there's more going on around us than we can see? What if there really is a, a spiritual realm, a spiritual world that's just as present as viruses that we can't see, that's real, that affects our world and our lives in significant ways? See, many of us don't like that idea all that much, but the reality is that is the world that we live in. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, oh, no. Like, this is just, this is going to get real weird really quick, isn't it, Paulson? Like, you're going to start talking about devils and demons and the spiritual world. And before the end of this message, we're going to be getting out oils and doing incantations and all sorts of weird things. I actually don't think it's as weird as you think it is. So I'm going to invite you, I'm going to call you to stick with me just a little bit. As we dive into the end of this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. I would invite you to turn there in your Bible now. But as you do, we need to discuss the kind of world that we live in. I mean, what kind of world is this that we get the chance to inhabit? You know, I think C.S. Lewis nailed it when he said this in the Screwtape Letters. He wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall into about the devils. He said one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both heirs and hail, catch this, they hail the materialist or the magician 
with the same delight. I think that Lewis is spot on. That there's these two polarities that we have the tendency to, to swing between. One is to be absolutely obsessed with the spiritual world, with demons, with the devil, with what Paul will call the principalities and powers, to be obsessed with them. So if we don't get the parking spot that we wanted right in front of the supermarket, the devil's out to get me, right? The other side of that is that we live in complete ignorance of them. Now, I think that that's probably where more people in our culture right now fall. Uh, We've been educated under this idea of Western Enlightenment materialism. The things that are real are the things that we can see. The things that are real are the things that are susceptible to the scientific method. What's observable, what's measurable, what's repeatable. That's what's real. The only problem with that is that the scriptures say that there's a whole lot more that's real that we cannot see. Yeah, so I wonder today where you would fall. Would you be more along the lines of the the magician that's more obsessed with the spiritual world or the materialist that just says, I'm sort of ignorant of it? I think that's where most of us would fall. As, As Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. And I think many of us have been raised with that type of thinking. Well, As Paul concludes his letter to the Ephesians, he's going to talk about the spiritual world. The spiritual world that's more real than most of us give it credit for. And he wants to teach us in this short little section how to acknowledge that world and how to stand and flourish with vibrancy and victory in this world that we find ourselves in. So the Apostle Paul concludes the letter to the Ephesians with the most complete teaching that we have in the scriptures on spiritual warfare, on how to engage with the spirit realm and and how to walk in victory. And so I know we've talked about that this may seem a little bit strange or a little bit weird to some of you, but I'm going to invite you to stick with me and see what the scriptures actually teach about this, because my conviction is that what you're going to find is it's a lot more normal than what you may think on the surface. Here's the way that Paul ends or begins to close his letter to the Ephesians. He writes this in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, he's starting to close it out and he says, be strong in the Lord, not not in your strength, not in all of your ingenuity and in your success and in your ability, but be strong in the Lord. He writes a very similar thing in Colossians chapter one, verse 29, when he said, for this I toil, struggling with all of his, meaning God's, energy that so powerfully works within me. Did you know that God's power is at work within you? That you don't have to stand in your own strength, but that you can stand in his strength? That your victory is not about your independence and exerting your dominance. It's actually about receiving from Jesus and learning to live in dependence on him. 
Here's the way that Paul continues. He writes this in verse 11. He says, And put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. (laughs) I mean, that's some pretty serious language. He begins with a command, put on the full armor of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then he gives the reason so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. In the Greek, it's this word, this idea, the, the, the devil's methodology or his methods. Did you know that the enemy of your soul has methods, has ways that he approaches people, has ways that he attacks people? And the scriptures talk about a number of these, but let me just read a few of them to you. Some of the the, the schemes or the methods of the devil. He works in opposition to the gospel. He can be a source of sickness. He can incite paralyzing fear of death. He plants sinful plans and purposes in the minds of people. He tests or tries Christians by confronting us with various temptations. He incites persecution, imprisonment, and political opposition to the believers. He's the accuser of the brothers. He performs signs and wonders to deceive the nations. He seeks to silence the witness of the church. He seeks to incite disunity and division. He promotes false doctrine. He influences the thoughts and actions of unbelievers. He attacks married believers in regards to their sexual relationship. He exploits our sinful decisions, most likely by intensifying the course of action already chosen. Those are just a few of the explicit ways that the scriptures tell us the devil schemes or connives or strategizes in order to attack those who are followers of Jesus. And so Paul writes in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See this terminology, rulers, authorities, powers. This is all his terminology and his way of talking about spiritual forces of of darkness, the devil and his demons, his angels that have partnered with him. And and catch the significance of what the Apostle Paul is saying. As a follower of Jesus, we have never laid eyes on an earthly enemy. We've never laid eyes on someone that was our genuine enemy. And see, Paul's not denying the fact that we have earthly and human antagonists. That's just a part of a reality of living in a fallen world. The point, though, is that when we do encounter opposition, especially opposition to the gospel, there is a spiritual force behind that physical manifestation. In fact, when the early church talked about the ministry and mission of Jesus, listen to the way they summarized it in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. They said this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See, the early church saw Jesus's ministry as one of confronting the devil, confronting the principalities and the powers and the authorities of this dark world that exhibit themselves in sickness, that exhibit themselves in death. They still exhibit themselves in similar ways in our world today. 
In addition to that, we see them um, showing their face in things like racism. Uh, we saw it this week when George Floyd was murdered in the street because of the color of his skin, because he was a black man. We see it in the way that there's injustice in our criminal justice system. We see it in the way that there's inequality and in wealth distribution and classism. It's involved in our systems and it's involved in our hearts. See, these are the enemies that Jesus came to confront and that Paul is going to show us as we put on the armor of God how we can confront and we can be victorious against as well. See, I think in a world that's maybe more divided than it has been in a long time, it would do us good as followers of Jesus to remember who our genuine true enemy is. And it's not anybody else that you've ever laid eyes on. It's the devil, the enemy of your soul, who would love to steal and kill and destroy. But here's the good news. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The very first part of verse 14, he says, Stand, therefore. I don't know if you caught it. There's a pretty significant theme that Paul's weaving together here. And it's this one word, stand. He said it in verse 10, or sorry, verse 11. He said it in verse 13 twice and once in verse 14. Stand, stand, withstand, stand. And I love this picture because what Paul is saying is that you don't need to fear the enemy if you know your God. You can walk victorious by standing in his might and standing in his power. The, the picture that I get in my mind is of uh, when I was a kid, we used to play this game called King of the Hill. And if somebody would stand on top of the hill and other people would try to come and push them off the hill and your only goal was to keep your ground, stand on top of the hill. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the believer. Here's what you have to catch though. You're not standing in your power, you're standing in his power. And you're not standing in your own victory, the victory that you've won because you're amazing and you're awesome. That's not the way that we engage in the spiritual warfare, the way that the scriptures talk about it. No, no. Victory, you may want to write this down. Victory is not something we strive for. It's something we learn to stand in. Let me say that again. Victory in the Christian life is not something that we strive for. It's something that we learn to stand in. And those are two radically different dispositions. One of striving or trying to earn or trying to fight with our own might or learning to stand in the victory that Jesus has already purchased. And see, I think for some of us today, for some of you today, Jesus is inviting us to come to him. I think he's saying, hey, are you, are you worn out on religion? Are you worn out on trying to fight this battle on your own? Come to me. Come to me, who, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. See, victory is realized, it's not achieved, it's accepted, it's not earned. See, your victory and mine 
was won 2,000 years ago when Jesus stretched out his arms on a Roman cross and gave his life on behalf of you and I to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. He paid it on our behalf, was buried in the ground, and walked out with new life in his hands. And when the Apostle Paul wrote about that event, he said that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. See, your victory was won on Calvary's mountain. It's his victory that you get to stand in today. But that's not easy. And we have to learn. Yeah, it's, it's not our earning, but it does take effort to stand in that victory and to learn how to walk in it on a daily basis where we get to experience all that Jesus died to give us. And that's exactly where Paul turns his attention to next. And so the Apostle Paul has just told us that victory is not something that we strive for, it's something that we learn how to stand in. And now he's gonna teach us how to stand in it because it is something we learn. It doesn't come naturally to us. And the way that we stand in this victory is by putting on the armor of God. There's six pieces of armor that he's gonna list. Listen to them with me as we read in verses 14 through 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, a lot of people think that Paul is pulling imagery from a Roman soldier that's standing right near him. Uh, that's, that's nice. I don't know if that's exactly the case, though. These are images from the book of Isaiah. He's repackaging them for the follower of Jesus to put on the gospel. That, that's really what Paul's intention is here. And as we look at these armors, this armor that we're called to wear, each piece of armor coincides with the way that the enemy attacks us. See, God wants us to be well-equipped. I mean, it would be like giving somebody a baseball bat and telling them to go play football if these didn't apply to the actual battle that we're facing, but they do, they do. And so listen to the first one, listen to what he said. He said, and stand firm there, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, the belt of truth, and truth is so important, and catch this today, truth is so important because deceit is one of the enemy's greatest tactics in our life. In fact, in John chapter eight, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil, which by the way, doesn't make you a lot of friends, okay? He says, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the father of lies. As he catch this, the fight to believe truth 
is spiritual warfare. And is that not applicable to our day and our time right now? I mean, I think of when Pilate asked Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 38, what is truth? I don't know if there's a more applicable question right now. What is truth? Because we are surrounded by more information than we ever have. And can we agree that there's very little truth in most of the information that we get? Yeah, we're reminded of how important that is today. But before truth is ever a proposition in the scriptures, it's a person. Because Jesus says, I am the truth. He could replace that word truth with reality. I am the deepest transcendent reality. My love and my goodness towards you are ultimate truth. So before spiritual warfare is about exorcisms and before it's about anything else, it's a battle over what you believe. It's why the apostle Paul will say for our weapons, of warfare are not of flesh and blood, but they have divine powers to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Friends, that is the spiritual battle, running every thought that goes through our minds through the lens of Christ. Is this true? By the way, that was 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. But would you write this down today under this idea of fastening the belt of truth around us that we would renew our mind through truth? Yeah, buckle it around your waist. Fasten it around yourself. Clothe yourself in it. And the next challenge Paul says, the next piece of armor he says is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. So here's the idea behind this. Your identity and understanding your identity is absolutely essential to standing in victory. It's the reason that when the devil approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the first thing he said to him, he wanted to sow subtle seeds of deceit. And he said to him, if you really are the son of God, if you really are, implication, you're not. And if you're going to say you are, you better prove it by all of the different things that you do. And my guess is you've heard those subtle thoughts bounce around in your mind too. Things like, I'm a failure, or I'm a fool, or I'm of no use to God or other Christians, or I'm worthless, or an embarrassment to Christ, or, or maybe you've just heard this, this lie, it's no use confessing your sins to God because you are way too far gone. You're inferior to other people. You're destined to always fall short. You're a hopeless victim of your past. You're a sorry excuse for a Christian. See, I don't know about you, but sometimes those thoughts bounce around in my mind but let me declare a better reality to you today. Let me invite you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And it's told to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul wrote, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the enemy's tactic is to try to get you to live in guilt and shame, but God's victory comes to you through grace and through mercy. You have been adopted. You have been made holy. You are his child, and you have been made right with him. 
So the spiritual battle is one to say, I refuse to carry guilt and shame that Jesus died for on the cross. As the great old hymn says, dressed in his righteousness alone, I'm faultless to stand before his throne. So as we put on this breastplate of righteousness, let me call you to write this down. Soak your soul in grace. Soak your soul in grace. And when the enemy comes at you with guilt and shame, come at him with Christ's righteousness. The next one that Paul says, he points out is he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, this, this idea of the good news of peace is already something that Paul's introduced in the book of Ephesians. In fact, all of these pieces of armor are. They're just being repackaged for us in this section. But let me give you my literal translation of what Paul just wrote. Here's my literal translation. Have your feet firmly planted on the announcement of the good news that Jesus is Lord and that he is weaving back together frayed parts. That's what peace means, weaving back together frayed parts. And Paul's saying, oh yeah, this, is, this needs to be ready in you to share this good news and to stand in this good news. Listen to the way that Paul nuanced this out in Ephesians chapter two, when he wrote this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. So that's the first idea of of peace that Paul talks about. You were far off, we were far off from God and he brought us near. We have peace with God. By the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Did you catch it? These two dynamics of peace. We have peace with God because we've been brought near. And we have peace from God because we are part of a community of people who have together been brought near. Yeah, so I want to invite you to write this down. I think what Paul's saying is embrace your call as a peacemaker. Not only one who makes peace with others, but who realizes that Jesus has made peace with you and that we would live in it confidently. So in verse 16, Paul continued and he wrote, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Isn't that an interesting statement? Faith is able to extinguish the darts of your enemy. Yeah, and the opposite's true also. If, if there's a chink in that armor, in that shield, then you're susceptible and you're able to be influenced by the enemy's tactics. I mean, think about it. This was the very first place that the enemy attacked Adam and Eve in the garden. He started to try to erode their trust in Yahweh, in God. He said things like, well, is God, or did God really say that? Can you really trust him? And by the way, faith is just another word for trust. Are you sure he's being good to you? I think God's really holding out on you. See, the enemy might whisper things to you like, If he really loved you, if God really loved you, he'd heal you. You wouldn't be sick anymore. 
or if God was really good, then you would never have to walk through this pain. Or if God was really here, you wouldn't have gotten divorced or you wouldn't have lost that job or there's no way that their global shutdown would have happened like this if God was really for you. And see, that's when you've got to hold up that shield, as it were, and you've got to remind yourself of who God is and who you are in him. Surely goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I am blessed coming out, and I am blessed going in. Greater is he that is in me than is he that is in the world. God is for me, and he has plans to prosper me. He's working all things together for good. He will never leave me or forsake me. His eye is on the sparrow, and certainly he is watching me. And I'm sh- I assure you, that when you go through that montage, the devil flees <laughs> because that's the shield of faith. What's really interesting is that the, the shields that Paul would have probably seen in his day would have been Roman shields. And if you've seen the movie 300, you've, you've seen this in action. Those shields are meant to be put one right next to the other. They're not singular shields that, that, that are effective. It's one linked to the other, linked to the other. It's the community of faith that's victorious. Yeah. So here's, I invite you to write this down. Declare your trust through worship. Remember who God is and remember who you are in him. That is a form of spiritual warfare. He goes on and he says this and take on, take up the helmet of salvation. Salvation means the healing of our body and our soul and our mind through restoration and connection with God. In the Greek, it's this word sozo. could also be translated healed, healed or, or saved. And see, sickness and death are part of the enemy's temporal strategy but they are not part of your eternal destiny in Christ. And so what Paul says is put on that helmet of salvation, that that helmet of healing, and remember what God has done for you both now and eternally. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it. He says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So catch this, on the cross, Jesus defeats your cosmic enemy, the devil, and he frees you from the power that the devil used to have under humanity, which was death. I mean, it's really interesting. We see that fear all around us right now in this COVID season. The fear of sickness, the fear of death, the fear of losing loved ones. And what Paul says is, no, no, that that fear of death is actually the power of the enemy. And what you need to do is put on the helmet of salvation. You need to remind yourself that, yes, that's part of the enemy's temporal strategy, but it is not part of your eternal destiny. You are redeemed. You are healed. You are saved in him. And one day that will be fully realized. Write this down. Remember that your destiny is life in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, 
This is my invitation to you to put your faith and to put your hope in the one who has conquered sin and conquered death and who is inviting you to follow in his way with his heart to become his disciple and to learn what it looks like and what it means to be victorious, to stand in his victory. He has one more, Paul does, that he writes about, one more piece of armor, and he says this, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, And notice how there's this idea that the the Spirit of God and the Word of God or even the words of God, the words that God speaks are connected. I mean, as Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, my words are spirit and my words are life. It's really interesting. If you go back and I'd encourage you to do this, read Matthew chapter 4 at some point this week to see the way that the enemy approached Jesus and attacked him every single time. Jesus responded with the word of God. I mean, the very first one, the tempter came to him and said, if you really are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's just quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. He's speaking out loud scripture back to the enemy because his words are spirit and his words are life and they drive away the evil one. You see, God's word is the only offensive weapon that we have in our arsenal. It's our way to go on the offensive. It's our way to attack. So let me encourage you to learn it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to soak in it. It's been said that when we are saturated with the scriptures, when, when life cuts us, we bleed God's word. I don't know about you, but when life cuts me, I wanna bleed scripture. I wanna bleed the words of God, that they would just be so in me that they come out of me. Write this down. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. This, friends, is how we fight the spiritual battle. So let me briefly recap where we've been. See, Paul makes this claim in closing his letter to the Ephesians that this is a spiritual world and we live in the middle of a spiritual battle. We have a very real enemy who would love to destroy us, but because of what Jesus has done, because of the victory that he has purchased, we can stand victoriously in him. And the spiritual life is not about striving for victory. It's about standing in the victory that Jesus has already purchased. And we do that by putting on the armor of God. And he told us the armor of God is truth, it's righteousness, it's faith, it's peace, it's salvation, it's spirit, and it's scripture. To summarize, it's really normal gospel stuff. See, in so many ways, we want spiritual warfare to be ecstatic, to be about driving out demons, which sometimes it is to be about doing battle with the devil. And we picture him with like a pitchfork and horns and a tail. But in so many ways, spiritual warfare is way more normal than we ever thought it was. 
I mean, spiritual warfare is simply learning to apply the gospel to all areas of our life. See, all of the armor that Paul talks about grows from the inside out. It's sort of like a turtle shell, or a turtle shell is attached to its body, and it actually grows from the inside out, and yet it provides protection for the body. The same is true of the spiritual armor. It's not so much something that we necessarily grab from somewhere else and put on. It's something that we become as we walk in intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's why Paul closes this letter in the way that the section in the way that he does. Listen to what he writes in verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I love that Paul comes to the conclusion of his section on spiritual warfare and he drives this stake into the ground and says, really, the way that we put on this armor is through prayer. It's through dependency on God. It's not through achieving. It's not through striving. It's not through developing better tools. It's through spending time with our maker. That's what it's all about. I love the way that Samuel Chadwick put it. He said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep saints from prayer. He fears nothing from the prayerless studies, from prayerless work, from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. See, would you finish our time together by writing this down? The life of flourishing is forged through the posture of prayer. Yeah, the the unseen enemy of COVID, the coronavirus, might be defeated by herd immunity or through a vaccine. But what Paul is teaching is that the spiritual forces of evil and darkness are defeated by Jesus on the cross and we step into his victory and we claim it as our own through prayer. So he says, pray in the spirit, all kinds of prayer and at all times. And I don't know where you're at today and I don't know what this season has looked like for you, but I've just gotten the sense in my own soul, like this is a, a spiritually heavy season that there's just a sense of of attack that's gone on, at least in my own life and maybe in our church as a whole. I've felt feelings like discouragement and frustration, division, weariness, isolation. In so many ways, isolation becomes like an echo chamber in our own minds, doesn't it? Lies that bounce, bounce around in my head. And my guess is that you've experienced some of the same. So I'd like to end our service today by just taking a few minutes to pray together, to do exactly what Paul said to do, to to put on that armor of God through prayer. So wherever you're at today, would you just bow your head? And I'd invite you, if you're in your living room or watching at a computer, would you just take a moment of silence, take a deep breath, and just ask the Spirit of God what He wants to drive home in your life through this time in the scriptures.
Is it a call to truth, righteousness, faith, peace, salvation, scripture, spirit? Jesus, what do you want to do? And Father, I pray for the people that are watching this video, uh, those that are experiencing spiritual attack. Would you remind them today of exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote, that they can stand because of your victory, that they can be victorious because you've already won the war. Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged today that you would be an encouragement to them. I pray that for those who are doubting that you would fill them with faith and remind them of your goodness. I pray for those that are carrying the weight of guilt and shame. Would they do battle with the enemy who wants them to carry that? And would they release it and pick up the grace that you are offering them. For those who have wandered away from you, Lord, would you call them back to you? For those that don't know you yet, Lord, allow them to hear your voice that's wooing them and calling them to healing and hope and salvation and life in you. And Father, I pray that more and more you would teach us to be the kind of people who know how to use your scriptures to fend off the lies of the enemy. Lord, thank you for your victory. Help us stand in it boldly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.